You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. My name is Michael Cow. Thank you for having me. Um, good to be with uh, the Real Vision guys again. Um, so I think I've been invited to talk about uh, oil. I never uh, ran a fund trading oil. I started my career basically trading the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index. This is you know back in the early '90s, and uh, was sort of master of, jack of all trades, master of none, if you will, in the commodity sector. Um, but then my career shifted towards the micro uh, when I ran my fund, and I ran my fund called Acanthos Capital for 17 years, and we were a capital structure long short fund, if you will. We basically traded uh, debt, equity, etc. across the board. But uh, in the last couple of years of me running my fund, we basically got invested in the energy sector, which required me to get back into studying the macro very, very uh, religiously. So I guess I'm here to offer you a couple of my viewpoints about the commodity fundamentals and where it's leading us. The link between oil and inflation and the benefits of backwardation. So I shared with you a chart recently uh, that JP Morgan made the case that crude oil is probably one of the best inflation hedges, especially at a time when the U.S. Uh, headline CPI is above 2% and rising. So you can show that chart if you'd like. Uh, you know, that's energy compared to industrial metals, precious metals, eggs, etc. But the most interesting chart that uh, I'd like you to point out is this bubble chart that basically shows on the y-axis the carry and the x-axis the the current valuation of the various sectors. And this is a multi-asset uh, class chart. And you notice that crude oil is in the upper left quadrant. And why that is significant is that crude oil currently is, is exhibiting a pretty steep backwardation. And for those of you not familiar with that term, when a commodity curve forward curve is backwardated, it means that the spot price is trading at a significant premium to forward prices. One of the things that I learned early in my career at Goldman, the J. Aaron Commodities Group, is that contrary to what a lot of analysts still say today, current forward prices are actually terrible predictors of future spot prices. And what I mean by that is that the shape of the forward curve is much more indicative of where future spot prices are going to go. Um, 
I want to talk about this this backwardation uh, situation a little bit. I recently looked at a study of backwardation of contango to backwardation flips over the last 30 years. So a contango curve is the exact opposite. It's where spot prices trade at a discount to forward prices. In the, over the last 30 years, um, there have been 11 situations where the forward curve went from a contango and flipped to a backwardation. In all but four of those cases, it led to significantly higher spot prices one year later. And what's interesting is that those four exceptions um, happened when there were exogenous, basically unpredictable circumstances that happened. The first one was the end of the first Gulf War. Uh, the second one was the uh, the Russian crisis in 1998, so big uh, demand shock. The third one was what I call the Trump rug pool. So like in, in Q4 of uh, 18, when uh, Trump asked the Saudis to flood the market with oil because we were sanctioning Iran and he promised no Iranian waivers. And then at the last minute, pulled the rug out under from the Saudis and granted waivers anyway. So oil uh, collapsed. And the fourth, of course, was COVID. So, um, so, so that study, more than anything, shows you the very strong predictive power of backwardation, number one. This bubble chart, though, is showing you what backwardation means to the asset class from an investment standpoint. So if you look at this chart, Oil being the left quadrant means that currently the valuation uh, as measured from as measured by the standard deviation from a long-term average is relatively low relative to all these other asset classes. But the, but it ranks very, very high on the carry. What that means is that if you are, say, an institutional investor in this asset, like a, you know, call it a pension or what have you. And you basically buy forward prices, buy, buy futures or forwards in oil. Because of the upwardly sloping curve, you will basically roll up the curve uh, and, and gain what's called a roll yield. Or at Goldman, we called it a convenience yield. And that that yield is indicative uh, that yield is given to you because it's usually indicative of some sort of uh, supply shortage in the front of the curve. And that, again, that contango to backwardation shift usually is indicative of, a, of some kind of major regime shift in the supply demand dynamics of the commodity. Making sense of OPEC and spare capacity. Let's talk about why I'm focusing on oil versus all of the other commodities first. Um, oil, I mean, when I traded the GSCI back in the early 90s, uh, the GSCI at that point was the first, uh, I guess, liquid tradable commodity index. And it was also different from some of its competitors like the CRB from the standpoint of being cap weighted by by world production weight. Um, and notably, the oil and natural gas, oil, the oil complex plus natural gas 
comprised almost 50% of the GSCI. So that tells you oil's importance in the in the world of commodities and because it is the largest uh, commodity by by production and by trade. So so you know OPEC has been around forever now and it's a lot of people refer to OPEC as the central bank of oil. Let's talk about recent events for a little bit. Um, the March OPEC plus meeting um, was a bit of a shock, a bullish shock for the price of oil, because unlike what happened in the aftermath of COVID, where, where you had a severe demand drop exacerbated by uh, the Saudis and the Russians going into a market share war. That's basically what led prices to go negative for a brief moment. Uh, I think I think both OPEC and Russia realized how damaging that was um, for for both of their their uh, countries' um, uh, revenues. So this this March, the OPEC Plus meeting was surprisingly uh, characterized by, I guess, co-op much better than anticipated cooperation. Um, in fact. Their their draws are going to lead global inventories well below the OPEC plus sort of safety stock of 2.75 billion barrels. Um, historically, when supplies have dropped below that line, uh, the the price of oil is much more subject to to big price shocks. Um, the okay, so you mentioned something earlier about spare capacity. So the biggest knock to the oil bull thesis right now is that spare capacity within OPEC plus is admittedly high. So core OPEC um, has about six and a half million barrels per day of spare capacity. Well, that's without Iran, and of course, you know, given the uh, the administration's pivot back towards Iran. You can't count those barrels out. With Iran, that's 7.9 million barrels per day. You add in Russia um, and this area called the neutral zone, you get about 10.5 million barrels per day total, right? So, so that's that's the that's the knock on supply because you could you could argue that the supply curve is fairly elastic, right? What I what I think. At the risk of saying this time is different a little bit, I am going to say exactly that because I think OPEC Plus is emboldened by a confluence of factors right now. Um, number one, uh, we've had a big change in administration. Um, we've got a pivot back towards ESG and climate sort of shackles on the on the oil and gas industry. Um, number two. Um, there in within the oil circles, there's what's called long cycle production and short cycle production, right? So short cycle is basically the shale guys. Long cycle tends to be, you know, deep sea, more traditional uh, sources of production. And the long cycle production has basically been starved of capital since the oil crash of 2014, 2015. These long cycle projects typically have gestation periods of four to seven years. So by any measure, we're now at the point of seven years since that crash happened. And so long cycle production has been starved out. 
I have a very good friend who is a C, one of the smartest CEOs in the in the oil patch, and he he calls this the missing wedge. Um, that missing wedge of production from long cycle starve capital starvation is about to hit us. At the same time, that the short cycle guys, you know, all the public EMP shale plays have found religion in terms of capital discipline. And that's something I'll, I'll revisit in a bit. And then finally, um, there's also been a shift in this administration's foreign policy. The administration has definitely taken more of a hard line against Saudi Arabia. And I believe that is also emboldening OPEC plus, which is really de facto led by Saudi uh, to, to take a harder stance on oil. The bullish reflexive feedback loop. The current dynamic that we have here is that we are flooding our system with monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus, right? And that notably, that fiscal stimulus is geared towards pushing dollars into the lowest wealth deciles of society. And there, there are a number of uh, charts that I've seen uh, that show that the lowest deciles of society basically spend most of these stimulus checks on, you know, Maslow, if you if you follow Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, these are spent on largely spent on commodities, um, oil being one of them. So you can show that that chart that consumer direct spending as a percentage of uh, income chart that I shared with you. Now, as I alluded to earlier, because of the confluence of factors that's emboldening OPEC plus, between the ESG shackles, the the starvation of long long and short cycle supply, and a newly emboldened OPEC plus, that ironically is setting up the dynamics for potential continued price rise in these essential commodities, which in turn could hurt the lowest deciles of society, and then feed back into this reflexive loop of requiring more stimulus. That's that's sort of that's the first feed potential feedback loop that I see, which is more of a reflexive, self-reinforcing feedback loop. That's not my base case though. My my base case tends to be the more uh, self-correcting feedback loop. The commodity inflation butterfly and bearish taper tantrum feedback loop. There is a second feedback loop that I'd like to talk about that is that has potential ramifications on risk assets. Before I go into that, I'd like to differentiate between the CapEx and OpEx commodities um, and store of value commodities and other inflation indicators. So OpEx commodities like oil are commodities that are being consumed all the time. CapEx commodities, which are like the industrial metals and lumber, are commodities that typically go with infrastructure growth and building, et cetera. Well, these commodities, the CapEx and OpEx commodities, probably OpEx commodities in particular, I think are most important relative to, with respect to um, impacting actual consumer inflation. Because at the end of the day, when the Fed is engaged in inflation targeting or now average inflation targeting, they're not looking at the price of Bitcoin 
to to figure out monetary policy. They're looking at how this trickles down and impacts the end consumer. So when you have OPEX and CAPEX commodities really start ripping and impacting the lower deciles of society, this is where you have the risk of real incipient inflation leading to a potential taper tantrum at the long end of the of the bond curve and unless the unless the fed engages in yield curve control which i have i personally have real doubts about their ability to do that because what's the exit strategy um that could then force a a a taper tantrum across all risk assets and a lot of those risk assets are ironically other store of value commodities and other inflation indicators potentially bitcoin um and you know there there there's no shortage of indicators right now that we have way too much excess liquidity and so the this particular self-correcting feedback loop is one that i would watch very very closely so a while ago uh i i wrote a tweet thread uh, entitled something like this, how the commodity inflation butterfly, when it flaps its wings, it could have far-reaching effects like creating a risk-off tsunami in, in, um, in risk assets. And so what I mean by that is going back to this self-correcting feedback loop I just spoke about, when there is inflation in the real commodities that matter to the to the 99% of the world which are the opex and capex commodities that in turn creates a condition where the the longer term risk free rates as as uh, as uh, governed by our yield curve start going up notably in the current market environment there are a lot of indications of almost negative risk-free rates or negative market risk premiums, at least, where the most inflated assets are those assets that have zero to negative cash flows or cash flows that are really, really far out. So think concept tech stocks, think crypto, uh, all of these what I call hyper-beta risk assets that are most dependent on very low to negative long-term risk-free rates. So I keep racking my brain as to what could be the potential catalyst to to spike those longer-term risk-free rates and potentially prick the bubble of these these, uh, hyper-beta risk assets. And to me, it's the commodity inflation butterfly. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Will shale ruin the party? So if you haven't guessed already, I have a bullish thesis on oil, um, but there are certain risks to that thesis. And historically, the shale sector, at least in recent history, has been very undisciplined in its uh, in its drilling. Right, the the drill baby drill of of the last 
decade have certainly ruined many commodity price rallies in the past. And so the question is, will this happen again? Um, so at the risk of saying this time it's different, I do think this time the dynamics are a little bit different that mitigate those risks. So, you know, the the public ENP space, after many, many years of delivering subpar returns, has finally been finding religion in capital discipline. Um, I've said often that the biggest risk to investing in the public ENP space is capital allocation risk. And so what I mean by that is all these uh, all these public EMPs might be telling these CEOs will tell you that oh you know our wellhead economics are thus and thus and doing great, but the shareholder never sees any free cash flow because those wellhead economics and the cash flows from those wells keep constantly getting diverted back into the ground into by definition less compelling acreage. And in some cases, pure uh, ge geology experiments, like untested areas, that happened quite a bit in, in the 2014-2015 time period. And so back then, when you had oil prices above 100, you had a lot of that going on. And that's why a lot of companies crashed and burned, because they were diverting cash flow back into the ground into far riskier uh, geologies. So. So what's what's very interesting is that I recently saw a study from BMO that showed that in the in the recent uh, recovery of the oil and gas space, that the private EMP companies have driven an outsized share of the recovery, despite accounting for only about seventeen percent of lower forty-eight volumes, compared to thirty-two percent share back in twenty fourteen. So. That tells me that the public EMPs in this go round have finally found religion. Um, they are much more capital disciplined than they were before. And, and also the steeply backwardated curve isn't really helping their case. Even though we have spot oil, spot WTI trading in the low 60s, if you just look at prices two years out, they're in the low to mid 50s. And that's another reason why the public EMPs are a little bit reticent to add a lot of activity right now. There's a chart I'd like you to share with your audience. It's this uh, frac spread versus rig count chart. I spoke to my smart CEO friend in the sector and I asked him, I said, look, you know, you, pre-COVID, U.S. production was up to 13 million barrels per day, and right now we're just, we're we seem to be struggling to get back to just 11 million barrels per day, and um, the EIA isn't predicting um, 12 million barrels per day until the end of 2022. Why is that? My CEO friend says that, I, and I quote: "I think we're just about through the duck." inventory, the drilled but uncompleted inventory. And I think we have too few rigs relative to uh, frack fleets to stay balanced. Frack fleets are the completion crews. So what gives? Um, capital coming up or production falling? And I really think that his opinion is the latter, that production is going to be production uh, recovery, at least amongst the short cycle producers in the U.S., is going to lag. Um, 
So I guess the bottom line is that absent a complete about face in OPEC plus resolve, it's unlikely that U.S. shale will be able to ruin the party, um, especially when we're also colliding with this missing long cycle wedge I alluded to earlier. The risk to that thesis is that, look, in in commodity circles, we have a saying, the risk to high prices is high prices and the risk to low prices is low prices, right? Um, and so what is the risk to, what is the risk of high prices right now? Well, and what is deemed high? Um, so my, my smart CEO friend will tell you that um, in his circles, a lot of CEOs that he's spoken to and that he follows in the public space are right now signaling 5% growth max at any price. Maybe that changes above 70 bucks, but um, you know, below 70 bucks, he's, he's, he thinks that we're going to have pretty slow growth. And mind you, that's the $70 that I'm talking about doesn't refer to spot prices because shale, most shale companies are levered. They're RBL lenders, the resource-based lenders, have pretty strict hedging criteria, right? So they need to hedge out a certain percentage of forward production uh, at, at any one time. So they're not like Saudi Arabia and OPEC, where they're just unhedged and basically selling, price, uh, selling their wellhead production at the spot price. They need to hedge forward one year out, two years out. And so again, the backwardation matters a lot here, and OPEC has U.S. has has U.S. shale right where it wants it because even though the the front end of the curve is trading in the low 60s, 2023 prices are in the low 50s, and there are a number of factors that you know I've spoken to uh, a number of oil analysts who think that between the lower quality of inventory that's remaining, so basically. You know, there's a concept of high grading where short cycle producers go and and complete their highest quality inventory first. So by now, our tier one inventory is pretty much gone in the U.S. And tier two is now the new tier one. And soon tier three will be the new tier one. Um, there, the, the inventory, sorry, the fragmentation of the shale industry is is still very significant. I, and but ironically, in the oil field services industry, there's been quite a bit of consolidation. Um, and then, and then finally, the the lack of capital, right? So all of these sectors uh, are conspiring to raise the break-even price of U.S. shale. And one analyst that I have a huge amount of respect for thinks that this is these this confluence of factors has effectively raised the the break even for US shale by 6 or 7 bucks a barrel. So in the past when you know US shale might might be adopting a drill baby drill approach at like a $60 strip, you know, you could easily see that 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 break even number now might be six, seven, maybe even $10 higher. So all this means that the bottom line is, you know, one of the biggest wild cards to the bull thesis is lack of shale discipline. And I don't think that 
the shale guys are in a spot right now to respond as aggressively as they have in the past. When do EVs really affect oil demand? So I think no no discussion about oil is complete without you know talking about the EV elephant in the room, right? Because you know that's that's that is the wild card longer term that uh, some that some people think could spell the 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 peak oil demand um, thesis. So in the short term, look, um, you know pre pre COVID. Uh, world demand of oil was just cresting about 100 million barrels per day. Currently, we're right around at 95 million barrels per day. And by the end of 21, we're going to be just around 98 million barrels per day. Um, You know, a a number of analysts I think I, I speak to think that by end of 2022, we'll be recovered back to around 101 and a half to 102 million barrels per day. The question is, when does EV um, adoption really impact gasoline demand? And a number of folks I've, I read and I speak to think that that really doesn't happen until after 2025, possibly 2030. The reason is because the EV adoption uh, percentages seem to consistently disappoint. Um, currently, so here are some predictions that I've seen. Um, for 2023, EV penetration is expected to be around 5.8%. It's expected to climb to 11% by 2025. And then by 2030, uh, 26% penetration. Um, Notably, you know, China is leading the pack in the world with respect to EV penetration, but even China has fallen well short of expectations because in 2021, they were expected to achieve 8% penetration, but the real number looks like it's going to be more like 6% uh, penetration. So look, OPEC plus is smart. They know this and they are unlikely to let oil prices just completely go bonkers say like 100 150 bucks a sh- you know 150 bucks a barrel or something like that because that will obviously change the entire conversation about these adoption rates right let's revisit spare capacity for a second spare capacity in OPEC plus is around 10 and a half million barrels per day current demand is around 95 million barrels per day. That means that by the time world demand reaches 105 million barrels per day, we will officially be out of spare capacity, barring huge increases in shale or non-OPEC production. So I wanna point to a couple of charts real quick. Um, The first chart I wanna show is something that we talked about, but we never actually showed uh, graphically. This is a chart of U.S. shale, how pre-COVID, we were at 13 million barrels per day of production. And as you can see in this chart, we're going to struggle to get back above 12 million barrels per day, even by the end of 2022. The second chart I want to talk about is non-OPEC 
plus and non-US. Those oil producers are basically those long cycle producers that have basically been starved out of the market. So if you look, their production really has been flatlining for quite a long time. So the real source of spare capacity in the world that can respond quickly to price changes is OPEC plus. And I just gave you the scenario where that spare capacity gets fully absorbed by demand. And some analysts think that that could happen as early as 2024. And look, if we get into a situation where there is no more spare capacity in the world, ironically, you could see a oil super spike right before um, a longer term peak oil um, thesis start panning out. So the current high level of spare capacity in OPEC plus is what gives OPEC plus its leverage and relevance to the world right now, right? Because they know that if they keep supply too artificially constrained, they're just going to accelerate EV adoption and their own demise. So I believe that OPEC plus knows this and they're going to just try to dribble out that spare capacity just enough to have high oil prices, but not a runaway super spike. But there is a date and a point at which they run out of that ability to do that, that exactly that. And I think that date can happen as early as 2024, because if you think about where we currently are in oil demand, we're at around 95 million barrels per day. Pre-COVID demand was right around 100 to 101. So by 2024, the expectations are that world demand will have will be cresting 105 million barrels per day. At that point, we will have exhausted all of OPEC plus spare capacity and at that point, we also don't know how much, how what, what the remaining quality of U.S. shale will be. And mind you, the long cycle projects around the world in non-OPEC plus, non-U.S. territories, they typically take five to seven years to develop. So we could be hitting a time in 2024 where oil prices have a super spike, ironically, right before EV adoption really starts hitting its curve. And then when that happens, it's going to even make the EV adoption cycle that much more self-fulfilling. Is the US trading one energy dependence for another? So there's one last chart that I, that I wanna share. Um, and it's relevant to this discussion about EVs, and that is the notion of U.S. energy uh, independence from the Middle East specifically. So as this chart shows you, right, um, because of the advent of shale, we've basically become pretty independent uh, as measured by the amount of net imports of oil and natural gas and coal, right? And you see that we reached a, a net export level uh, in October of 2020. 
ironically, COVID and basically the starvation of long cycle oil uh, and all of the topics that we talked about today may have made that particular point of energy independence the actual, the absolute trough that we're going to see. And what I find really ironic about this EV transition is that we may be trading one dependence, formerly of Middle East oil, to a new dependence, which is a dependence on rare earths required for batteries in making EVs, right? And that dependence will be on potentially the Democratic Republic of the Congo and China. So I think the ramification of that might be that the the rumors of the the death of hydrocarbons might be um, a little premature because unless we completely change our laws here and allow you know mass extraction of rare earths it's not that we don't have the rare earths it's that our laws prevent us from doing a lot of the dirty mining necessary to extract these rare earths um it may be that we might need our internal combustion engines a little bit longer than we anticipated. Summary and takeaways. So we've talked about a lot of different themes around around oil. And I think that to summarize, I believe that if you are looking for a real inflation hedge, it seems like the confluence of all the different factors that we talked about, in addition to the monetary debasement theme that everybody is worried about, make oil a very interesting inflation hedge. Um, that said, it could be sowing the seeds of its own destruction in a way um, if this spare capacity completely runs out by 2024. So it's not a an evergreen investment strategy, certainly, but I think from a from an inflation hedge perspective, it's a very, very interesting vehicle. listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com